0: You may be seated. The love of God. We've been studying the Gospel of John for some time now. I know that it's easy when we go through a study like this of a book week after week, day after day, that we begin to lose the, the, the big picture. We get focused in, rightly, on little pieces and we forget how the puzzle meshes, how it all goes together. I want to remind you of just a little bit of what we've been talking about since we began this study. John starts this powerful book in the halls of eternity past by telling us about the Lagos. In the beginning, the Word. The Lagos was with God and the Word was God and He was in the beginning with God. The first 18 verses are known as the prologue, and and all John's doing in these 18 verses is building a case from eternity past. If you could look back into the hall of eternity, you would see God, you would see His Son in the Word, and you would see the Holy Spirit. And then John goes forward from there in time, showing us the creation by using the famous words, "...in the beginning." Sounds very familiar to all of us, I'm sure it did to the Hebrew people. That's the way Genesis began, in the beginning. So he's, in saying that, a concise way of saying the creation. This God, the Lagos, the Word, created all things. And then he moves down to describe uh, the Word as the light, the life. Then he says in verse 14, the Word came in flesh and it lived with us. He literally... He, he tabernacled among us. He took up residence in our zip code so that He might identify directly with us and take our punishment and give us His righteousness. This is the description of the incarnation of the Word. And then He begins to talk about this Word as the example to us in 18, uh, verse 18. He ends this powerful section by saying, he, In Moses and the law we received the truth. As Aaron said, nobody stands up to the truth. And so John says, but in this Word we received grace and truth. In other words, God knows we can't live up to the Word. God knows we will fail. And from the very beginning He has offered grace and truth through Jesus Christ to us. And so we have this powerful Picture painted in the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. And then he moves into a narrative section about John the Baptist and his earthly ministry, which highlighted, which is highlighted in when he says, John the Baptist looking and seeing Jesus approaching him as he's baptizing people in the River Jordan, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so, John makes this declaration. The Word is the life, is the light, is the grace and truth of God in His name, is Jesus Christ. That's how He brings that story out to us. That's how we make the connection there. John's literally playing connect the dots with us through the Holy Scripture. The Holy Spirit through John is telling us all the truth we need for salvation. Remember, the point of the whole Gospel is that by hearing these things, you might believe in Him, and by believing, you might have eternal life. He tells us that in John 20. And so He's connecting these dots for us. In verse 35, we make a transition to the first recording of the call of the first disciples. John is telling us about how the disciples were called and He accents the calling with the story of Nathanael. Right? I mean, He says, uh, Nathanael uh, hears the word of, about this Jesus of Nazareth and He says, What good thing, could come out of Nazareth. What what are you trying to tell me? That God took up residence on the earth and then He took it up in Nazareth, this little bitty village, kind of like Jacksonville. You know, people in Atlanta might say, what good can come out of Jacksonville, Alabama? That's a little bitty place. Nobody famous has ever come out of there. And yet, when Nathaniel was approaching Him, He announced to the whole world, here comes a Hebrew in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel says, Teacher, how do you know these things about me? And he says, Nathaniel, before you heard about me, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. He's communicating to him his omnipresence and his knowledge. He's everywhere all the time and he knows all things. And he says, Nathaniel, you're meeting... You ain't, you're meeting one who you will literally be able to say about me, you've seen, you ain't seen nothing yet. This impresses you? This little knowledge I give you about you being under a fig tree, having a devotion in the morning, impresses you? I tell you, you'll see angels ascend and descend from heaven. You'll see me lifted up and exalted like you've never seen anything before. You ain't seen nothing yet, John says. It's just getting started. And then in John 2, he punctuates the fact that it's just getting started by saying his first sign. Remember, there are seven signs and seven teachings in the book of John. You could teach the entire book around these seven signs and seven teachings. I'm not choosing to do that, uh, but you can do it. And the first sign was at the wedding feast in Cana. And what happened in that miracle there in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12? We find that Jesus is a guest of probably a close relative or a good friend, and they run out of wine. We discussed that. I'm not going to go back through that. It's already been repeated to me that I said that uh, everybody can go drink. Uh, So, you know, we already started that rumor. But um, I'm okay with that. We're starting the rumor, I guess. (laughs) I better be clear finish my sentences. Um, But... We talked about how some have twisted this verse and tried to make it say things it doesn't say. I mean, what it says is that Jesus created wine. Not only did He create wine, He created the best wine anyone there had ever tasted. Because we know that is that the the, the servant, the, the head, master, said, You have been unlike anyone else. Everybody else puts the good wine out. I mean, yeah, puts the good wine out. And then as everybody's well drunk, they put the bad stuff out, you know, the the cheap stuff. But you've saved the best until last. This is the wine that Jesus changed from the purification water in the twelve pots, stone pots there uh, as the people would enter and purify themselves. And what is Jesus symbolizing in this? One, the importance of marriage. I tell you, marriage, God gives His blessing to marriage. He says it's a good thing. It's from the beginning. Your Father gave you this uh, your father from heaven gave you this blessing of marriage to do what symbolize my relationship with my church Jesus is foreshadowing the fact that he is the bridegroom and he is calling for himself a bride out of the people and he's doing this miracle I believe at this wedding at this time calling significance to the marriage and the representation of a marriage a husband and a wife to Christ in the church and not only that he's not only doing that but he's he's in a a way he's saying I am replacing all of your rituals you've been purifying yourself over and over again with this water and Jesus is saying that will cease to be now I will be your purification now I won't give you water to wash yourself I'll give you wine to drink and celebrate so that you might have life and have it more abundantly John will say in John chapter 10 quoting Jesus so we have this picture of Christ and then we move into his cleansing of the temple and then, which gives him sovereignty over the religious uh, worship of God and then he moves right into this story about Nicodemus. Now Nicodemus represents those who believed facts about Jesus, we said, but did not trust him. And so Christ did not trust himself to Nicodemus or those who, uh, who just had head knowledge. Many of you have head knowledge about Jesus, but you do not trust Him and only Him for salvation. And we've been harping on that. I've been preaching that over and over again because it's so contrary to what you will hear so often preached. Listen, all that is necessary for salvation is that you believe in Jesus Christ and you will have eternal life. But what is belief? Belief is more than head knowledge. You need head knowledge. Belief is more than emotions or assent are saying, I give myself to those things. I believe they're true. That's more than that. Belief in this context is actually trusting yourself to Christ and only Christ. Reclining on Him. Laying down on Him. Giving up everything else in His name. And leaning only on Him. And so we found there's nothing outwardly that must be done in order to make you acceptable to God God must change your inside so that your outside makes the change. You can't clean yourself up. You can't make yourself righteous. Believe in Him and believe in Him alone and you will be saved. We ended last week on John 3.15. And I know that all of you have been anticipating verse 16. I know that because since we started in John, all I've heard about is I can't wait till you get to verse 16 as if there's a controversy in verse 16 or something. This is perhaps the most used and abused verse in the entire Bible. Presidential candidate Al Gore hoped to score points with Christians in his party during the election of 2000. When asked about his religious convictions by one interviewer, President Gore on national TV said that he, he launched into this passionate speech in which he said that his favorite verse in all of the Bible is John... 16.3. Why are you laughing? How do you know it's not his favorite verse? John 16.3 says, And they will do these things, Jesus speaking, because they have not known the Father nor me. <laughs> Vice President Gore misspoke. And everybody knew it, didn't they? Because everybody knew he meant John 3.16. And we all make misspeaks, don't we? I do. Stay around long enough, so you write a book about all the things that uh, I say wrong. Jennifer Campbell's got a head start. You better get busy. All the funny statements I make. We all do it. But isn't it odd that everybody listening to that nationally syndicated interview knew immediately that he had misspoke? Why? Because John three sixteen is the most famous verse in all of the Bible. If I asked you to memorize, or I asked you to tell me what Scriptures you've memorized, I would be willing to say that everyone of any age would say John three sixteen. So I'm saying it's the most popular and it's the most abused of all verses. Can you imagine the shock and the horror of voters who took him up on looking up this verse, John 16, 3, and thought, is he saying he's not a Christian and that he doesn't know God or... or uh, or, or Christ? No, they didn't look it up. They never even had to think about it. They knew what He meant. John 3.16. I hope that after the next few weeks of looking at John 3.16, we'll all have a more educated, more passionate, and more uh, more uh, outwardly focused view of John 3.16. There's a simple complexity found here like nowhere else in the Scripture. Walk with me through the next weeks so that we may rejoice in the love of God together. What's in a name? In our Western world, a name really has very little significance. Today, our names simply designate us or label us as different from other individuals. In our our family or in our community. Most people could just as easily call their children Bubba 1, Bubba 2, Sister 1, Sister 2. They literally give no thought, much less any real hard work into naming children. Names are just names. People actually name their children after famous movie stars, big cities, and recreational activities. But in the Eastern world today, and especially 2,000 years ago, names meant something. Whatever you were called set you apart. It's what gave you your outlook on life. That's why we should never simply see the name of God as just three little letters on a page with no weight and no meaning. The name of a person in the Bible, especially God, tells us who they are. It tells us who they are. But how many times do we read this verse? For God so loved the world. Yeah, I put emphasis on God. How do we use the reason? For God so loved the world that whosoever, it shouts off the page, doesn't it? Believes in Him. Will have eternal life. What's the point of the verse by people's emphasis? The whosoever's and eternal life. I would say to you that Jesus, when He spoke to Nicodemus, and John, when He was recounting what Jesus told Him, would have read the verse like this For God. And there would have been an emphatic pause there because Nicodemus' mind would have run through all of who God is when it was said. I want to challenge you on something. How flippant, how meaningless is the name of God to us? How often do we say this most holy of names associated with the most vile of circumstances. How often do we just throw it out as some mantra as we begin our prayer? God, help us through this day. Keep blessing us. We need you. Thank you. Amen. Jesus said when His disciples said, How shall we pray? What did He say? Our Father, which art in heaven hallowed be Your name. On the top shelf, set apart from all other things, Lord, let Your name be set apart. The emphasis of John 3.16 is far from the whosoever's. The emphasis of John 3.16 is for God. When we look at the passage in context, it, it becomes... Very clear. Who is He? Where is He? What is He? Why should I trust Him? How can I respond to Him? we hear, For God, these questions should come into our mind, and maybe they do. Is the subject of this verse so meaningless that we won't even pause and contemplate who God is as we read it? I want us to leave this place today convinced and convicted and confessing that our God is great, and He is greatly to be praised. Listen to the weight that Scripture gives to the name of God. Now this is all there for your enjoyment on the screen. I'm going to move. Please do not flip to these verses. They're on the screen. If you'll just look at them, they're there. For God. God is. L. We find him for the first time in the Old Testament. It's used 250 times. El. Genesis 7.1. Then El, God, mighty, strong, prominent, said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation." The name of God is El. The name of God is Elohim. Strong one. 2,570 times we find it in the Old Testament. 32 times in the first chapter of Genesis, we see the word Elohim. Strong one. It's particularly used to talk about His creation, His creative ability, His preservation, His transcendence, His might. Jonah only uses this name to refer to God. He doesn't call God anything but Elohim. That's all he ever speaks of him as. In the beginning, Elohim. El Shaddai, God all-sufficient. 48 times in the Old Testament. 31 times in the book of Job. Think about that. Think about the text of Job. Think about the trials in Job's life. And yet, over and over, 31 times of the 48 times we see El Shaddai, it is in the book of suffering in Job. Job calls his God all-sufficient. Do you think Job knew something about the sufficiency of God when he lost his possessions, when he lost his health, when he lost his wife, when his friends came and heaped ashes on their heads and mourned in silence and cast a spurious eye on his life and said that he was a sinner? Do you think Job knew something about how sufficient God is and how that He is all we need? We find it in Isaiah 66, 15. For behold, El Shaddai will come in fire. He's the all-sufficient fire, and He will judge us, and He will stand, and no one will stand against Him. Adonai, the Lord. Genesis 15, 2. But Abram saw, said, O Lord God. The first time we see it is Abram saying, Adonai, Master, Lord, Jehovah, Jehovah means Lord. This is the covenant name of God in Genesis twenty-two fourteen. 14. Genesis 22 is a fascinating passage. My uh, daughter, Hannah Grace, is fascinated with this little story uh, about Abraham offering up Isaac on the mountain. We talk about it at supper all the time. It seems to be a story she just really hooks into. And she wants to know all the details. Because she's excited about this God. Why is she so excited about this God? Well, we'll look at that in just a moment with one of the additives to his name, Jehovah. Jehovah is a proper name, the covenant name of God. It's used. Over six, almost 7,000 times in the Old Testament. This name speaks to His self-existent nature. Exodus 3, God says, I am who I am. The meaning of this phrase is unknown to us, really. But the closest we get to it is that He is Jehovah. He is the covenant God. He is self-existing. Jehovah-Jireh, the Lord will provide. I told you, in Genesis 22, the name Jehovah is captured with this latitive about God providing. What did God provide in Genesis 22? A sacrifice. He called for Abraham to give up his only son, to slay him on the altar and burn him before God. And when Abraham was faithful, walking up that mountain with fire and wood and no lamb, and his little boy at 12, 13 years old looks at him and says, Daddy, we have fire, we have a knife, we have wood. Where's the sacrifice? Abraham knew. Isaac is the sacrifice. But he said, Son, God will provide. Have faith. God will provide. Even after laying him on the altar and binding him and ready to kill him with the knife, God steps in and grabs His hand. The angel of the Lord grabs Him and says, Don't kill your son. I know that you have faith now. You have shown your faith. You have displayed your faith. And there in the bushes is a ram. And it says that, can you imagine the weight that Abraham felt when he took his only son off the altar and he took that sacrifice and he named that place God will provide. Some of you need to know that our God is a provider. That He is a Creator. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. Exodus 15, Through 26, we find this where He says, I will heal you. I am your healer. I will not inflict you or punish you with the punishment of Egypt. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord our banner. Exodus 17 is the story of of, uh, Moses and the children of Israel under attack. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it. The Lord is my banner. He is my warrior. He is the one who goes before me. Jehovah Nkadesh, the Lord will... Who sanctifies. Leviticus 20 verse 8. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Jehovah Shalom. The Lord our peace. Judges 6 24. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it. The Lord is peace. Jehovah. Rohi. The Lord our shepherd. Hear the passage in Psalm 23 from the heart of a shepherd who says. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me into... Green pastures he makes me to lie down near still water, jehovah elohim lord god psalm fifty nine five you Lord, God of hosts, our God of Israel, Jehovah, our righteousness jeremiah twenty three five through six behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In His days Judah will be saved, and Israel will d- dwell securely. And this is the name that we see. His name shall be, the Lord is our righteousness. Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. Ezekiel forty-eight thirty-five, describing the celestial city says, And the name of the city shall be, from that time, the Lord is there. That'll be the name of the heavenly city that has no foundations on the earth, but is founded in heaven. Jehovah Sabbath, the Lord of hosts. Psalm forty six, seven, the Lord is of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. El Elion, Most High. Moses calls God most high in Deuteronomy thirty two, eight. Mighty one, the branch, holy one, judge, God of seeing, El Roi. So Hagar said in the, in, the, in the wilderness, thinking her son was dying, she said, Truly, I shall call this place El-Rohai. God sees me. God sees me. He protects me. He looks after me. Kanah, jealous. The name of God is Cana in Exodus 25. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, deliverer, Savior, Redeemer, Shield, Strength, Righteous One, Everlasting God, God of the Covenant, Mighty God, God our Rock, King, Father, the First and Last. Malachi calls the Messiah the Son of Righteousness. Isaiah calls Messiah Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And Daniel calls Him the Ancient of days. These are the names of God found only in the Old Testament. We're not even going to look at the New Testament because when Nicodemus heard Jesus say, for God, he didn't just flippantly go past that. This is what ran through his mind, for God. God is sufficient. God all sufficient, Lord, the Lord will provide, the Lord who heals, the Lord our banner, the Lord who sanctifies, the Lord our peace, the Lord our shepherd, judge, Lord God, the Lord our righteousness, the Lord is there, the Lord of hosts, most high, mighty one, the branch, holy one, God of seeing, jealous God, deliverer. Savior, Redeemer, Shield, Strength, Righteous One, Everlasting God, God of the Covenant, Mighty God, God our Rock, the Son of Righteousness, Wonderful, Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Ancient of Days, King, the First and Last, love the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish." but have everlasting life. I ask you this. Do you serve a small God? We have a God that has so much being that one name doesn't suffice. What if you had to name your children this way? What if, you were, what if your children, what if the people you dealt with every day had to be listed this way? Can you imagine the legal forms that you would have to fill out? And in, you, in the name blank, can I flip it over on the back? I've got a lot. Imagine the names of this one being, the all-seeing, all-sufficient One. He is our God, and it's this God that Jesus inserts here as He says, for God. Oh, the unspeakable joy that should have flooded the heart of Nicodemus when he heard these precious words. He should have fell to the ground, wept in repentance, and called on the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And just think... This is not all the background that Nicodemus had about God. When he heard for God, he knew God is the creator. He had no questions in his mind. And God created the entire universe with the power of a spoken word. He didn't sweat, he didn't work, he didn't labor, he didn't have to, you know, struggle and strain. He spoke and it came into existence. And he didn't create some small, menial, insignificant place. We get caught up on the world. The world as in the earth. But God created it all. Scientists tell us that light travels at the speed of 5.87 trillion miles a year. That's a lot of zeros. They know that the galaxy which our solar system is a part of is about 100,000 light years in diameter. Light travels at 5.87 trillion miles per year. And scientists tell us the one galaxy that our solar system is a part of is 100,000 light years across. That's 587,000 light years that a trillion miles across, 587,000 trillion miles. This galaxy is one of about a million galaxies in the optical range of our most powerful telescopes. It has been estimated that in our galaxy there are more than 200 billion stars. The sun is one of them. A modest star burning about 6,000 degrees centigrade on the surface and traveling in an orbit of 135 miles per second, which means it will take it about 250 million years to complete one revolution around this small galaxy we live in. I want you to know that our view of the God of John 3.16 is far, far too small, far too trivial, it is on the border of blasphemy. We should never doubt again the wonder of our God. Job tells us in Job 26.14, Behold, these are but the outskirts of His ways, and how small a whisper do we hear of Him. God spoke all of these things into existence, and it's this God that Jesus says to Nicodemus, For God, think of the thoughts that must have flooded Nicodemus's mind. He's not only the Creator, but He is the Redeemer. I want you to know that as awestruck as we should all be that God created such a vast universe, we should be even more awestruck by the fact that the universe is not God's most powerful work. After the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden we, uh, of Eden, the Creator God began to reveal His eternal plan of redemption. In Genesis 3.21, we see this. And the Lord God made for Adam, for his wife, garments of skins and clothed them. Aaron's been teaching about this in the Sunday school hour. This is a powerful statement about the redeeming plan of God. He didn't catch off guard when they sinned. But their sin must be paid for. And so he took an innocent one, an animal, and killed it and clothed them in it. And he said, I will be your God and you will be my people there was faith involved in that act for them to trust God. Notice though, right after that, as I have on the screen put for you, Genesis 3, 22 through 24. God not only clothes them in skins, but He bans them. He locks them out of the Garden of Eden. The Garden was a place of dwelling with God. Man had a perfect relationship with the Creator. He walked with Him in the cool of the day. And now we see the desperate need of man because of sin. He's locked out of his relationship with God. There's no way home for him, it seems. I want you to see John 3.16 in the light of these verses in Genesis. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold... The man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Don't fall asleep on this point. This is the picture of Jesus in the Gospel of John. The fact that man has lost his relationship, he has no way home, and God drives him from his abode. He kicks him out of the garden. He says, you cannot return. And he sets there angels of worship, cherubim who worshipped at the throne of God, and a sword, a flaming sword, to keep them from coming back to the tree of life. When Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3.15, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The picture is now complete. In Genesis, they had no way home. And now Jesus says the way home is me. You can't go back the way you left, but you can come through me. In Genesis, God drove Adam and Eve from His garden because they sinned. They were broken and ruined by the fall into sin. God made a provision for them through the sacrifice of an animal which simply foreshadowed His ultimate sacrifice in His Son, Jesus Christ. After clothing them with skins, God barred them from relationship through the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. No longer was mankind going to be allowed to live forever by eating the fruit of the tree. Do you see what God blocked the path, that God blocked the path to the life that they had enjoyed? God set them apart because of their sin. They were locked out. They were barred from re-entering. God took then and put in place a cherubim too. Everywhere we see these cherubim in Scripture, they are at the seat of God. In the Holy of Holies, they are above the Ark of the Covenant and they face covering themselves the Shekinah glory of God. It's where God would come down and have relationship with His people. Everywhere we see them, they are in the presence of God. They are worshiping God. They are adoring their Creator. And He not only places them there, but imagine, I believe with me, the sword between them blocking the path to the Garden of Eden. Here is this sword, flaming, powerful, blocking them. They can't return. There's no way home. The flaming sword is, I believe, the Word of God. God was placing His eternal Word in the path to stop Adam and Eve from going back to the tree of life and finding in it the way to eternal life. God says, You cannot go back to the garden, but you can have life through the eternal, flaming Word, Jesus Christ, my son. This is why John later will record for us I am the way the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by Me. I believe this is a blatant reference by John to the story the Hebrews knew of God blocking the people from God because of their sin and setting this flaming sword there. And now Jesus says, Your path has been blocked by this flaming sword. You could not return to Eden, but I am the way the truth, and the life. I believe in John 10 when Jesus says, I am the door of the sheepfold. He who enters through me will find life and rest. I believe He's speaking directly about this picture in the Scripture for us. I believe Nicodemus knew this, and I believe it is this that Nicodemus rejects when he walks away from this conversation. If you will know the meaning of the most... Famous verse of the Bible, you will have to know the fame of of uh, of, of God's Son, Jesus Christ. God is the creator, God is the redeemer, and both His creation and His redemption are accomplished in Jesus Christ, His Son. I was always confused when I would hear my grandfather pray at home. My grandfather was a faithful man, and still is today. He would rise every morning long before anybody else, and he would study. And often, as a little child visiting him, I would go in and listen to him pray. And this is what he would say. I thought of it as I studied this passage. He would say, Oh, Father, thank you for burying the flaming sword in the flesh of Jesus Christ that we might have access through him to you. I had no idea. Never thought to ask. And this week as I was praying and studying over this verse, I said, the old man knows something. <laughs> Just because he's old doesn't mean he's hasn't got it. Genesis 3 is painting the picture of the flaming eternal Word of God which was thrust into that body born from Mary. And it was hidden from us the, the barrier was hidden now in his flesh and so he identified directly with us and he took our sin and he gave us the passion and zeal for the righteousness that only he could bring Eden is possible through Jesus Christ our Lord I tell you I'm looking for the day when the same eastern sky shall open And that flaming, burning sword is visible again. Oh, it comes again. When he returns, his name shall be written on his thigh, and proceeding from his mouth shall be a sword. It reappears to us. It is the Word of God. It is Jesus Christ who we come to God through. He is the only way, the only truth, the only life. And hidden in him is that barricade that kept us from God. And now there is a bridge. We don't go to the tree of life in the garden. We go to the tree of life, the cross. And we hold holy and firmly to him. And we say, if you won't have us, Lord Jesus, we will not be had. If you won't save us, no one can save us. If you won't accept us based on your work and your work alone, we are unacceptable. Please bury the sword of barrier in your flesh and save me. I beg you, save me. Let the nations rejoice, John Piper would say. Our God is great and mighty, He is a God that is greatly to be praised. Hymn writers have written about it for centuries. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Crown him, ye martyrs of your God, who from his altar call extol the stem of Jesse's rod and crown him Lord of all. Ye see of Israel's chosen race, ye ransomed of the fall. Hail Him who saves you by His grace, and crown Him Lord of all. Sinners whose love can ne'er forget the wormwood and the gall, go spread your trophies at His feet and crown Him Lord of all. Let every kindred, every tribe on this terrestrial ball, to Him all majesty ascribe and crown Him Lord of all. Oh that with yonder sacred throng we at His feet may fall, we will join the everlasting song and crown Him Lord of all. Eden will be had only through Jesus Christ. Perfection, salvation, and relationship with the Holy God is possible, Nicodemus. For God So loved the world that He gave His only Son so that the barrier might be thrust into Him and the bridge might be built so that anyone who believes in Him has faith, trusts Him, shall be saved. Eternal life is yours today. Only if you will believe in the flaming eternal Son of God. Let's pray. Father, your word is so sweet. Truly, there is nothing in heaven or earth that can compare to this mystery known as salvation. It can only be known through you, Jesus. I praise you this morning as the one who created it and now has redeemed it by your blood. Feeble sermons can never reach the height nor plumb the depths of a love that is so powerful that you father would love worms like me and so we say with paul that this love is wide and deep that this love is powerful and strong that it is as the hebrews Writers of the Hebrews says it is an all-consuming fire. No one stands before you on their own merit because you will consume them. And those who stand before you in the blood of Christ, saved by your Son, are consumed by you as a holy offering and a gift from our Lord to you. And so we are consumed, we are eat up, we are totally dependent now. On you. We thank You that You did not stop at Eden. You did not only block our path. Lord, we thank You for that because had You not blocked our path, I am certain that we would have continued to go to the tree of life. Men have searched for the fountain of youth, a source of life outside of You for centuries and centuries. And they have all failed because there is no other source for life there's no other source of truth. There's no other way except You, Lord Jesus. Help us not to be so prideful and arrogant as I believe Nicodemus has shown to be that we cannot fall down before this God. You are most precious, most holy, all-sufficient One and worship You. Don't let our hearts be hard. Soften them, replace them. Give us love for You and passion and zeal for You. And when we think of this verse, may we think of how great our God is, our creator and our redeemer. It's in your name that we pray, Lord Jesus. And we ask that you would work in